0: welcome to the open book unbound podcast morning marjorie hey claire how are
1: you i'm good thanks how are you Yeah, really well. It feels like um, we're well into summer. It's August. We've had our month of rest and we're gearing up for August in
0: Edinburgh. Are you all ready for the Book Festival? Yeah, cannot wait. It's part of my favourite, I would say, couple of weeks of the year. Just been poring over the programme, booking into events that I want to see. As usual, far too many uh, attractive (laughs) offerings (laughs) there, so just making sure I don't schedule too many things in a day, so I spend the whole day uh, staring at a screen.
1: Takes me back to when we had little Kids. I mean, Open Book was born from the book festival, wasn't it? When we had five or six kids between us back then, and we used to, one year, remember we worked out, we were either of us or both of us was there every single day at the Edinburgh Book Festival. Was that the year that the rain was so strong that the concrete couch sunk into the gardens? Do you remember that? I can remember lots of different years, but there were years where we were definitely there every single day.
0: Yeah, and really looking forward to seeing the new venue up at the Edinburgh College of Art, having a potter around the bookshop. It's a beautiful space. If if all of you listening out there
1: are in Edinburgh or within shooting distance, come and have a look because it's such a beautiful space. I remember picking up things from some of the Edinburgh College of Arts students to take down to the Wigtown Book Festival, actually, and being just amazed. It's like a secret space in the middle of the city. It's a beautiful thing. So I can't wait to be there in person. But also this year, like last year, but kind of with a better twist, I would say, just because we've moved on in the world, you can log in from wherever you are. So it means that if you're on Shetland or in Tyree or. Dare I say, outside of Scotland, you can join us too, and you can listen in. Can I just say a little bit about what, finally, about what we're doing at Open Book for all of you out there? We're going to be attending four different events, and you can find out all the information about it and some extracts in our newsletter, which is where you have found this podcast. We hope um, on our website and um, online. And the events that we're going to be attending this year are the Golden Treasury of Verse, Small Bodies of Water by Nina ming Powell's Thin Places by Carrie Nidocherty, and Lev's Violin by Helen Atley, which will be an amazing event because there's going to be a violinist there as well. And we'll be thinking about, you know, objects as we are this month. So it's a really apropos event, that one. But I can't recommend Nina's poetry to you enough. It's a beautiful book called Magnolia as well. And that book is about belonging and the idea of living in one place maybe being from another a bit like the thin places book as well and then last but definitely not least please join us to chat a little bit about the golden treasury of first so various of our groups and hopefully you will join us at those events and then you'll be able to find out information about where we'll be getting together on zoom afterwards to chat about them together as a group so if you've joined us or even if you have read the book and want to talk about it but haven't been able to make the event please join the open book zoom chat room afterwards bit like we, we used to do in person, Claire, right?
0: Yeah, it's not it's not quite the same as having a slice of cake and a cup of coffee in the party pavilion, but it's a pretty good second best. And if you want to find out any more details, you can go to openbookreading.com and you'll find all the information in our newsletter and you can also sign up for the newsletter there. But we hope to see your faces and hear your voices later this month.
1: So today we've got... Um, A short story by Angie Holden called Preserving History and a poem from one of our favorite poets, John Glenday, to read. Will I kick us off on the story and we can just get stuck in? Yeah, why don't you do that? Okay. Preserving History. The ceremonial reopening had long been talked about in the town and was, as expected, a grand affair. There was a TV crew from the regional news channel and even a mention, a couple of column inches, her nephew later tells her, in one of the more cultured national newspapers. Edith was very surprised to be asked to cut the ribbon, declaring the premises open to the public. She'd been proud, too. George would have loved that, seeing her dressed up posing for the photographer with her big gold scissors in her hands, the mayor in his chain of office standing to one side. There was a demonstration by the newly appointed lifeguards who pretended to rescue a gentleman in distress, followed by a mini-gala between the children from two local primary schools, which was proclaimed a draw despite one team winning every race. The finale was provided by a team of synchronized swimmers who performed a routine that the program claimed they were perfecting for the Olympics. Edith was amused by the tiny pegs on their noses and their fixed smiles and wondered whether it was normal these days to wear eyeshadow and lipstick in chlorinated water. Afterwards, tea was served to all the guests. Salmon and cucumber sandwiches with a crust cut off and spiced chicken on cocktail sticks, and dainty macaroons in pastel shades for afters, and flutes of bubbly. Altogether, it was an afternoon to remember. A week later, a framed print arrived, accompanied by a kind letter from the chairman of the works committee, thanking her for her attendance. The picture had already been on the front page of the paper, Caretaker's Widow opens refurbished pool. There had been a nice write up about George, too, saying how dedicated he'd been and that he was remembered with great affection by the local community. They'd quoted Edith saying how honored she was to declare the baths open again. The pool had been closed for so long and hadn't they done a good job with the renovations? It's the chairman who sets her thinking. He'd been talking about the importance of preserving history, assuring her that the investment was totally justified. Not that she'd questioned it, but maybe he'd seen her jaw drop when he'd mentioned the sums that had been spent. Eye-watering, George would have called them. The chairman had told her about the extensive modifications, including disabled access and the new water treatment systems, which had been required to comply with the updated regulations. Then he twinkled with pride as he told her he'd seen no reason to change the beautiful Victorian handles and locks. Yes, he'd reiterated, as pleased with himself as if he'd polished them with his own lawn handkerchief. They make wonderful reproductions these days, but few places can boast the originals.
0: Shall we stop there?
1: Okay, first question, which is before we even get into the story. What's the story with the chains and mayors in this country?
0: Yeah, it's kind of some sort of ceremonial thing (laughs) of office. It doesn't look very
1: comfortable, I always think. So the idea that someone would turn up in one of these amazingly beautiful but slightly... From in my head, out of place outfits at a swimming pool is kind of funny to me. I don't know if she meant it to be funny or she meant it to be quite serious, but it seems it seems slightly out of place. Do you think that's what she meant?
0: Yeah, I mean I think there is a really a touches of humor in there. I mean, when she describes the saving of the gentleman in distress, the pretend rescuing of the gentleman in distress and the children from the primary school sports stay being declared a draw. I could just hear the voices of the children. Can you not, if you were your kids coming home saying, We want every match? And it was still declared a draw. it made me laugh and and even this sort of the reference to the makeup in chlorinated water, so I think there is an intention there to make us sort of smile and and for it to be slightly ridiculous, although I have to say
1: I'm just as an aside on one of my social media feeds this week, somebody popped up, which was obviously an advert for something, saying, "Here's the makeup you wear on the beach," and I thought, what?" <laughs> what I mean that's the last place I would think to put maybe if I was going out I would put on some lipstick or something in the evening but the idea that you go to the beach the very place and as you all know Claire and I love to get in the water and swim the very place that you're likely to take off anything that's you know you've applied onto your body the idea of applying it to be in that place just made me laugh out loud so I
0: can I'm with Edith here I'm just thinking of the sand sticking to your lippy <laughs> on the beach. <laughs> it's not It's not good. You might get a lip scrub you hadn't intended.
1: Yeah, if any of you have a solution for that, not that we're going to take you up on it, but if any of you have tips for, you know, what you might wear to the beach that doesn't stick to your face, I mean, imagine putting on face cream and then the, the wind blows. That's it. That's what would happen to me. I would look like some kind of mummy. Anyway, so I'm with Edith on that one. Uh, do you think she's enjoying it
0: though? I think so. I mean, I think my sense is that she's really, she's taking a lot of pride in it. And the, fa- the fact that she's been chosen to cut the ribbon is a lovely sort of honour of her husband. I love the way I really feel like I'm watching it through her eyes. The descriptions, I, I feel like I, I know a little bit about her and that she's quite a sort of feisty character and quite down-to-earth person. And I, I take that from her description of what she sees going on.
1: I, the thing I really like is this this idea that Angie gives us of you know what you might, from an outsider's view, think the widow of the caretaker comes on and you might think, oh, it's a nice thing to have asked her and it's a nice thing for her to be there. But actually, as you say, she's a bit sassier than that on the inside. You know, she's obviously polite and nobody's noticed that she's not not entirely grateful, but just taking note of all the kind of funny things. But from the outside, you might have a completely different perspective. And it's a good reminder that what we think we see in people, you know, we put them in boxes, whatever that box might look like for you. You know, all we would know about her otherwise is that she's the widow of the caretaker and he really cared about that place. But Actually, she's her own person, you know. Who's got views about lipstick and pools and not minding the bubbly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say,
0: I really hope she had a good few glasses of bubbly.
1: <laughs> you know, I don't know, we don't know if she's on her own or if she's got, you know, children or anything. But I can imagine at some point when you're not running around with work and your partner's not with you anymore, and you know, an outing, the food does matter. It does, you know, at a certain age, it matters what you get given for lunch, or especially the bubbly. If somebody gives you a glass of bubbly, that's quite a nice thing. But I don't know about you. I, I often and don't want to drink the bubbly, I mean, I will just sip at it, it. But if it's a kind of formal occasion... So you have to be oh. in your best behavior. You know, I kind of think I'm a caretaker in a room, usually in the sense of looking at who I need to speak to and making sure everybody's okay. And I lose that instinct a bit if I've had a whole glass of wine. So in fact, I had someone for dinner this week and realized by the end of the night that I hadn't refilled her glass once because I'd had a glass of wine myself. And I thought, mm, too bad. I should just make a note to people when they come in, rather than not having a glass of wine, saying, I'm going to be drinking. So here's the water bottle. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) and here's the help yourself one of my weird tixes i could i could just hand that out as an invitation to my house for dinner if you come get your arm ready for lifting your own bottle to fill it which would be funny I think people will forgive
0: me that. The other thing that I really liked about it was the, the way that there's a sort of slowness to the description. So it feels like you can take in what Angie is sharing with us. And it feels a wee bit like you're doing what she would have done, which would be kind of just looking around, taking it all in, noticing the little details.
1: Well, for her, it'll be somewhere that, you know, that way where you go back to somewhere that you know really well, presumably she knows it well. And if her, you know, her husband worked there, and she would have had occasion to be there. So and then it's, changed you know it's reopened so it's a bit like you know going back to the street you grew up on or your old school when you've been away from it for years or whatever it is it's the same but not the same you know and I think I saw on social media you know one of my friends had been having Lunch in the place that her that used to be the butchers where she and her mum used to go for meat, and you know she was pleased to be there in this cafe, this quite posh cafe, having lunch. But saying this is where my family used to buy our meat, and I think it was named the same. I can't remember what it was called. She was quite pleased, but it was like it is the same, but it isn't the same, you know. Um, so I suspect she's having a bit of that as well.
0: And then the extra layer of the cost, which is funny, it's an interesting observation.
1: Yeah, and I was I was thinking it did make me think. You know, we have this we have especially in place. Places like Britain where we do have lots of historical stuff that we can we should and can hold on to in a way that doesn't you know always happen where I'm from. But it's not just that you need to do the refurbishments of the building. But actually if you want it to be a swimming pool, all the new regulations around water quality and everything else it makes me think of dovecot you know in edinburgh that used to be a bath and is now this amazing gallery and space for weavers but i suspect part of the thinking in doing that will be there's one cost to refurbish the space but it's another on top of it to meet new regulations around a swimming bath so you know it's not it's not like just saying okay, we'll just put water in it and i'll be fine
0: and the, the way the chairman feels like he has to justify that expense is interesting it's an interesting sort of I think, lends on the relationship between them because t- just what we were saying earlier, the assumption of who she was and, you know, the widow of the caretaker, but here we have the chairman of the whole association. almost feeling he has to justify himself, which, for me, gives her a real sort of sense of place and sense of power in the in this story.
1: Yeah, and I, I mean, you can absolutely see it, can't you? The sort of, presumably, slightly younger person saying, I know it's cost a lot. I think it's a generational thing, too, of maybe an older generation thinking things cost more than they, maybe it's not worth it. You know, maybe things aren't worth doing because, you know, you can imagine what things were like before and maybe they're not quite the same as they were. But also, you know, part of me with my kind of lawyer brain or my board brain on says things cost a lot, you know, and they're really, you know, if you're going to do something for the next generation, you have to do it well. It's not his fault it costs a lot. A group of people will have taken a decision about what's, if they're going to do it for our community to make sure it doesn't you know, fall foul of regulations or it's still usable 10 years on. So I feel, even though she's having a little, I think, twinkle at him, I kind of think, well, come on, give the guy a break, you know, because I've certainly been in that position before of having to say, well, we have to, or else we don't do it, but let's not, let's not do it in a poor way.
0: And I can't imagine that it wouldn't have been his decision, just his decision. So you know, he seems to be shouldering a lot of the responsibility for what would have been, no doubt, the result of endless committee meetings. I'm desperate to know what happens. Can we keep reading, please? Yes. Shall I read on? Yeah. One particularly muggy summer's evening, about a month later, Edith fetches the old Cornishware jug from the dresser in the dining room. It had been her mother's and her mother's before her, And Edith can almost taste the creamy milk that grandma used to pour for her. Thick it was, and yellow, not like this thin blue stuff you buy nowadays. And you had to lick your lips afterwards, or be laughed at for wearing a moustache. She smiles as she brushes the dust from the shoulders of the jug and tips the key onto the table. She remembers how George had occasionally shaken the key out onto the palm of his hand, just to take another look at it. To other people, it might just look like an old key, one that could secure the entry between a terrace of houses, or maybe just the door to a garden shed. It is nothing spectacular, but George had been so proud of the responsibility entrusted in him, and the key was a symbol of their faith. Not that it was actually used very often. He normally let himself into the building by the fire door, the one with the Yale lock. Later, he'd open the main doors with the more ornate copy of his Victorian key, one which was kept on display inside the cash office. He'd kept the plainer Yale key on a leather fob, along with the master keys to the changing rooms and the cleaning cupboard. He'd handed those in when he'd retired, of course, patiently explaining the purpose of each key to the new caretaker. He'd always intended returning the Victorian key too, but then they decided the baths were uneconomic and boarded up the windows and chained the doors. After that, there hadn't seemed much point. And so it begins. She takes her black swimsuit from the drawer where it has lain unused for so many years and tests the fabric between her fingers. She tries it on. Maybe it's not quite as elastic as the last time she wore it, but it's unlikely to disintegrate on contact with water and the seams are holding firm. She opens the door to the airing cupboard and lifts aside the pile of white towels. Underneath is the brilliant turquoise bath sheet she is looking for. With the key secure in the zipped pocket of her padded coat and the soft towel carefully folded under one arm, she leaves the house under cover of dusk. She has learnt the invisibility of an older woman, but doesn't want to meet an inquisitive dog walker, so she cuts down the alley behind the terraced houses, away from the street lamps. When she reaches the baths, she glances around briefly before she tries the key. It unlocks the newly refurbished oak door, and she opens it just enough to slide inside. No need to turn on any lights. She knows these corridors like the back of her hand. Pausing beside the steps that disappear beneath the still surface, she kicks off her shoes and drops her coat onto the green ceramic tiles. With barely a splash, she slips gracefully beneath the water. (laughs) I want to cheer for her.
1: Yeah, exactly. We're with her the whole time, aren't we? We're like, go, go, go. Let's, before we get to what she's doing with it, I just love that description of the key and how some objects just hold so much. Well, first we get the object of the dresser, don't we? And how, you know, all these years later she can still pull up, you know, that sense of creamy milk that her grandmother used to pour for
0: her. And I love the description brushing the dust off the shoulders of the jug. I can almost, it's really visceral, I can almost feel it. You know, sometimes if you haven't been particularly thorough with your dusting of any objects that might be on a shelf. When you pick it up, it has that sort of slight tackiness. It's obvious that she's not gone after that key for a long time, apart from anything else. But
1: I love, I mean, just going before we even get to the key, that idea that an object of furniture in your house, maybe back to the same theme I'm always on about, but because we don't have any objects like that or furniture that carry with them this history but the idea that when you approach an object somehow it takes you back to being a girl you know like a f- piece of furniture rather than something you can hold is such a I'm jealous, I'm jealous of that memory there and Angie does it so beautifully and even you know that little description of needing to lick your lips so you could, so you won't be teased about the cream on your face is is a beautiful visceral thing you know that, that will stick with me as much as the rest of the story I think and reminds us that she's not just this old older person or older woman she's a person with her own whole history and then we get to the key right this I don't know about you but I can picture it you know I can picture it and I can feel its weight in my hand and it's unusual I guess how she shares that affection for an object with another person because so many of the objects that I care about and there are not many are just about my own memories of them
0: I think, though, that that's maybe imbued with this loss of her husband. So she, she's maybe taking on his feelings around it in a way to feel closer to him. That idea that it was important to him almost makes it by default important to her. She feels that she wants to carry on that reverence, if, if that's the right word, of the object almost in memory of him and make what was important to him feel closer. But so often the things that I, you know, think of that matter
1: to generations in the future aren't always the things that you'd expect. So they're not um, family heirlooms or if you have any in your family or jewelry or whatever the family silver you know in my case there's a set of silver that's been passed down yes it's valuable and yes it matters to me and yes I use it on holidays but actually you know if I had to choose between that and this, the pan you know the pot that my mom always made sausage and beans in and my great granny's rolling pin neither of which have any monetary value the the, the things that matter to me are those other things that I can picture people using it didn't necessarily weren't of value to them but it's about it's somehow carry their character in those objects or just their really strong memories around it. Whereas my mum would have found the silver really valuable. So in this case, it seems like a cross because although the key's not of any real value, it symbolizes, I guess, power maybe, or George's place in the world and therefore generationally their place as a couple in that community. Which is, you know, presumably then right because she's she's called upon to cut the ribbon. So it, it feels like a really subtle, lovely thing that it isn't an object of value necessarily.
0: Yeah, and I think it symbolises the responsibility and the trust that Andy talks about when she says George had been so proud of the responsibility entrusted in him. I think for her, the key becomes a symbol of that, and so as you say, it's the connection rather than the value in the thing.
1: And in this case, it's not the thing he uses all the time because he even thinks it's so, such a value that he you know it makes me think of like keeping one for good (laughs) he uses the one in the office so he can make sure the one you know he's been given is actually really safe at home you know it's a bit like hiding keys under a stone and you know in front path or something you want to make sure they're always there so that you're not locked out so it's a bit that's my sense is that he's not necessarily thinking that the key is so valuable it's just that he wants it to make sure as a backup almost and he uses the ceremonial one Which I think is a funny, funny point, isn't it? Like imagine going in and opening a cupboard and using a ceremonial key rather than the one you've been given. It tells us something about him, I think, even though the story is not about him.
0: And the fact that he hasn't handed it in, despite the fact that he's he's retired and he he has gone through the process of transferring his job responsibility onto the new incumbent. You know, he seems like quite a careful and particular man. So I, I do, you know, at the back of my mind, I'm thinking, hmm, it's difficult to think he's forgotten about that key. No, there's a part of me that thinks he think might
1: think, well, that I still might be called upon in a fire or in an emergency, and then I can still get in the building if I've got that key because I know where everything is, you know, in the way that, you know, knowledge isn't always passed down whether it's you know i don't know what it would be in a swimming pool whether it's you know stopcocks for water or outflows or whatever it is you know presumably someone who's worked there most of his life or been there for many years will know better and i at least i can imagine him seeing thinking ah those young bucks coming in won't know how to fix whatever if there's an emergency change yourself, the water filter properly <laughs> <laughs> yeah or do the, do something in an emergency and if it if something goes in the middle of the night i can cuz they obviously live near enough that for her to be able to walk but now let's talk about her i mean she's Great. And breaking the law. I, would, I
0: really want to be the kind of woman that would do this in the middle of the night. She's doing this in her own, remember. It's not like she's got somebody else there to gee her on, which I think I might need somebody else to just sort of push me over that last threshold and actually do it. And the planning and the contemplation. So she's thought about not wanting to bump into dog walkers. So she's thought about... And she's searching for the, you know, the beach towel. You know, it's not the first towel that she comes to in the cupboard. She's got this... In her mind. For me, anyway, she's sort of been maybe been thinking over this for a couple of days or even a couple of weeks and planning out the specifics. And, you know, she doesn't turn on the lights because she knows the way so well. And it feels like she's walked through this maybe many, many times before she's actually gone and done it. I'm so pleased she did, though. I wanted to cheer for her.
1: Yeah, and I mean, that line of, you know, she's learned the invisibility of an older woman. She takes that and turns it on her head and uses it to her advantage, you know? So at some point when people stop seeing you, great, because you can get away with stuff. You know, it's a bit like those conversations we've had about part of the reason I love New York City so much is because you're just so anonymous. You could almost do anything in New York and no one would pay attention because someone's doing something crazier. you know, five feet away. It's a bit like August in Edinburgh in a normal year. You know, yes, you see a banana walking across the road and you literally don't look. Like the first banana, you think, what's that oh yeah we're in festival and then there's like goblins and a caterpillar and a person dressed as a suitcase and you and after a while you just stop seeing it but she's taking the invisibility of an older person which we hear about and read about and 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 hear about in our groups so much don't we about people stopping hearing and listening and seeing and she's taking it thinking great now i can do something that i want to do without getting caught so the question is do you think she's going to get caught do you think anyone's going to notice
0: I don't think this is the last time she's going to do it. I think she's going to get away with it today. And I think at some point someone will notice. But I think she's sassy and smart enough, though, that that she'll use that big turquoise towel to dry her wet footprints and leave no trace. I think that'll have been part of her planning, that she'll have thought of an exit strategy as well. And I think she'll be enjoying this illicit midnight swims for quite a long time.
1: I'm with her. I think we think she's great but we'd love to hear what you think about her so tweet us or let us know what you think about Edith and uh, and whether you do what she's decided to do or whether you plan to at some point in your life or the sneakiest thing. Maybe not tweet
0: us with that (laughs) maybe email us with that. Yeah maybe don't
1: don't tweet what you're planning to do or the sneakiest thing you've ever done but we I assure you we'd love to hear about it.
0: And thank you to Angie for a brilliant story. Loads to talk about there. I really enjoyed that one. Me too. So we've got a poem to go with it from one of our favorites,
1: the lovely John Glenday. And this one comes from his book, The Golden Mean from Picador. It's called The Match Safe. It's four A.N. If you must carry fire, carry it in your heart, somewhere sheltered but hidden, polished by hands that once loved it. The lining may be scorched and blackened, but only you must ever know this. That easy hush you sometimes hear at night as the darkness stirs in you is not the accustomed ache of blood, but a flame shivering against the wind. A meager flame, seeded long before you were born, which you have always known must be kept burning forever and offered to no one. So we chose this poem because it's about a match safe, which is an object, which is our theme this month. It's a little tiny, some of you might know what it is. It's almost like a little tiny silver, usually silver object smaller than a cigarette case that used to keep matches in. And I don't think you'll be annoyed with me for saying the reason he wrote the poem is because as a young boy, he was given one, his father's match safe. And then when he was out picking tatties, I think, it fell out of his pocket in a field and was never recovered. It's an object he lost and wishes he hadn't. So in, in that sense, probably carries
0: it with him. But the poem seems like about something completely different. What do you think? It feels like a sort of exhortation to look after yourself, to be the one that goes out to the swimming pool. If you must carry fire, if you must do something that has dangers, do it in a way where you look after yourself.
1: Yeah, whereas for me, the flame is like your own sense of self, your own, you know, if you're the kind of person who's a who has a really strong sense of self, take care to protect it, carry it, make sure it's hidden, and then it's that flame that was looked after by hands that loved it. For me, that's a family member or mom or a dad. But you know, and and around that flame it might be scorched. You know, you might have scorched people or yourself a little bit, but actually that idea that you I can't offer it to anyone,
0: you've got to hold on to your own flame. So a much more internal, a much more sort of things going on inside for you than looking outwards. It's a metaphor
1: for me for that internal flame and that we have to keep it going ourselves and nobody else is responsible for it, you know, that you can't really offer it to anyone else that you have to take care of it and you need to you know that idea of scorched and blackened is interesting It's lovely
0: image isn't it it's like something's not going to be untarnished and undamaged in time but that doesn't mean to say it has any less worth
1: and also that things are painful and difficult but actually you know that you keep going that you keep going and You don't have to tell everyone that. You just have to hold your flame. You have to like almost like hold your nerve, you know, but throughout our lives because there's, it does, you know, it does have that kind of transcendent thing about it was long before you were born and It's almost like that thing of you've got to keep that flame burning. This is your point at which you have to keep the flame going. You know, this is your responsibility during your lifetime. And and I I only say that because I've heard him talk to our groups at the Botanics a few years ago about this very thing. You know, that idea that we're here for a short time and it's our responsibility to do what we can in that time.
0: And for me, that, that includes looking outwards and taking those opportunities and not being afraid, not scared of risks, but taking the care that you would, but doing it anyway the obligation and the responsibility to take the opportunities that come your way and make the most of them.
1: I mean, that, that third stanza about the hush you sometimes hear at night as the darkness stirs in you, what we might think of as, you know, anxiety or worry in the dark, some kind of dark stirring in you for me, that's what it brings up, isn't, he's saying, it's the flame shivering against the wind. So it, all it is is it's just, you know, in the way that you might picture a candle moving because there's a gust of wind a little flame that you have to keep going yeah I love it's that a beautiful image, image that yeah, yeah I do too and inspired by this object that you lost and it made me think maybe the things you lose you almost carry more you know if it's something that really matters to you you carry them you know he's still talking about it at his you know slightly older than us age when he must have lost it at the age of I think he said he was a teenager so In some ways, the things that we can't see, you can almost carry with you more, which is an interesting way to think about things, too.
0: I wonder if it was still in his jacket pocket or trouser pocket, whether he would think about it as much as he obviously thinks about it now.
1: Yeah, that's what I mean. It's a funny thing that if you lose something, you almost get it back in a way, if it's valuable enough to you. And especially if you write a poem about it and put it as the first page of your book, <laughs> and then people ask you questions about it, so that's another way to remember it as well. So
0: I was just going to say that the significance in it being a match safe is that matches, at the time when match safes were first created back in history, matches were one of the most precious things that you could have you know they were really if they got wet they were completely ruined and they were really expensive and you know only the most well-to-do people would actually have a match and so you know that idea that this match safe is talking about something that is the most precious thing you could have and that's your sense of self and you know your spirit and nurturing that for me is just a, a really nice connection
1: and he often turns things on their heads as well, right? So this is about a match safe, which keeps matches unlit and safe. But in fact, he's talking about fire um, and in an enclosed space. And for me, it's about the possibility, you know, because matches are about possibility, right? You're keeping them safe for the future. You're keeping them safe for use. You're holding on to something in case you need it or for an emergency. But actually what he's talking about in the poem is keeping something lit. And so it's an interesting contrast, I would say, between the object he's talking about and what he's actually talking about, which is holding a fire in an enclosed small space that you don't let others into. And maybe that's what he sees in a match, the possibility of fire. I love I love the contrast because, it, as we've talked about so much, that it's that gap between what you think it means and then what it might mean for you as you get deeper and deeper. And this is always true for me of John's poems. The more you look at them, the more you see Um you know that's what engages the reader for me. Or that's certainly what engages me, and I think that's our experience at Open Book is, the more there is to question, the more we like the poem, or the more we pay attention to the poem, which is a good reminder for us poets out there. Yeah. So thank you, John, for um, letting us read and talk about your poem today and have it on our in our newsletter. We always really appreciate his work because, as we're saying, it's so approachable, as you say, Claire, and all of our groups seem to love digging into them so we'd love to hear what you think about that poem but thank you John
0: I think that's just about us for today so it's been really lovely to have Angie's story and John's poem to chat about and to put into our podcast for this month on objects by the time we're with you next we'll have been to some of the events in the book festival that Marjorie mentioned earlier so really looking forward to that Um, and thank you as always for having us in your ears and we hope to be with you again soon come and join us at the book festival